This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. I'm Zachary Farley. With me today is Jason Grisanti of the Black Dirt Distillery in Warwick, New York. Thanks for joining me today, Jason. Thanks for having me, Zach. My pleasure. So, Jason, I'm up here in uh, Warwick at the Black Dirt Distillery. Tell me a little bit about your distillery. What should the world know about the Black Dirt Distillery? Give us a brief history of it. Well, the Black Dirt Distillery is actually an outgrowth of the Warwick Valley Winery and Distillery. Black Dirt is our new distillery venture located actually in Pine Island, New York. Yeah, (laughs) it is the first uh, distillery in the Black Dirt, and we have 60-foot Vendome column still. We're focusing right now on bourbon and other whiskeys, as well as Applejack. So that's interesting, Applejack. Now, that's a spirit very native to New York. Is that? It is very native to New York. It's really very native to Warwick, too. Warwick was one of the country's largest producers of Applejack at one point in time. And I've read that there were something like 27 distilleries in this community. Mm-hmm. Now there are, no, oh, there's one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would be you. That would be uh, us. Yeah. Um, Good, you pushed all the other competition out of business. Well, I think like, Prohibition pushed them uh, all out of business. <laughs> and uh, we were the first ones to start making Applejack again. Oh, cool. But Applejack, you know, is a historic uh, American beverage. Mm-hmm. It's sort of um, confusing product because the government allows you to blend neutral spirit with Applejack up to 80% neutral spirit. All of the Applejacks that we currently have are 100% apple brandy. Oh, really? You, Although the law allows you to blend in other things, mm-hmm. we choose at this point not to. And so let's kind of talk about that because here on your facility, you're surrounded by apple orchards. Yes. And um, is that your family's farm? It's uh, it's our, the business farm here. We have 20 acres of apples that we grow for hard apple cider, okay. uh, for apple brandy, and we also sell retail. So you have such great access to apples, you don't need to uh, blend at this time. You can just right. do what you and need. And- we, we, we chose not to blend. We wanted to make a, a real apple product. You know, our background comes from wine and hard ciders and really trying to express fruit yeah. is what we've always been doing. And, and well, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about that history then? Um, you were a winery before. How long have you been uh, making wine out here? Well, what was kind of the history of the Warwick The Warwick Valley Winery opened in 1994 with wines and ciders. I think in our first few years of production, maybe we made 3,000 cases in multiple years. And then uh, over the years, we started to really focus our business more on hard apple cider and then more recently distilled spirits. Mm-hmm. We uh, became a distillery in 2001. We applied for and received a grant from the state of New York for $50,000 to start New York State's first fruit micro distillery. And specifically, we wanted to make fruit brandies. Mm-hmm. Fruit eau de vies, pear eau de vie, pear, uh, apple brandy, plum brandy, things like that. And we started doing that. And, and the license at the time in New York State, we, there was no farm distillery license like right. we have now, only allowed us to make fruit brandies. Okay. And, you know, back in 2001, 2002, there wasn't a real big market for fruit brandies. Right, I was going to ask you, that's an interesting market to go into. <laughs> yeah, um, it was a market with Yeah, no 2001, before the craft boom, so to speak, is, uh, had really taken off, especially here in New York. What was that process like back then, trying to get a DSP and uh, well, getting well, licensed D- by the state? The DSP and- portion of it, the, the, the license from the state actually happened pretty fast. Okay. And the DSP portion, the federal part, took a little bit more time. We applied for our license just around uh, September 11th, 2001, and the TTB made our license uh, 
our application sort of just didn't happen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Were they busy with no? <laughs> they, they, they had other things yes. on their mind. Our <laughs> application was not one of them. Okay. So um, that took a little time, but we got it eventually, and we started making fruit brandies. And like I said, at that time, you know, no one was really drinking fruit brandies, and finding anyone either locally to purchase them here at our facility or wholesale was really very difficult. We eventually changed our license and were started to make fruit liqueurs okay. first uh, in our American fruit line of liqueurs using our own spirits mixed back with juices and various sugars and honeys and things like that. And that, that found some, some market. And then we started working and making gin and then eventually whiskey. And this was probably 2008, 2009. And we saw that there was a real market for craft distilled spirits in, that, in those categories. And so we started really putting a focus on that area of our business. So let's back up for a second then. You really had to create a market then for the products you were first coming up with, your eau de vies and liqueurs. Uh, how did you do that? How did you, uh, can, you, can you kind of take me into that a little bit? How did you convince a distributor to take a chance on you on this uh, new product? Because liqueurs... And ODVs and kind of out there spirits, especially back in 2001, 2002, 2003, not as big as they are now. The, sure. the drinking culture was much different. Very uh, different. The spirits culture was much different. Well, luckily, we the license that we had in the state of New York allowed us to self-distribute. Okay. Um, so we were not looking for a distributor at that time. And there's no way we would have found one at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was hard enough to get retail accounts or yeah. uh, on-premise and off-premise accounts to take in products. But uh, my business partner, Jeremy Kidda, who you've spoken to, he basically went door to door and you know tried to create relationships and hoped yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that, <laughs> that people would uh, you know take in the product. And yep. luckily, we had a, a line of wines and we had a, a hard apple cider, our Doc's Draft hard apple cider. Which is fantastic. Well, thank you very yeah. much. So we made a bunch of different products. Oftentimes, you could we could piggyback new products okay. and other categories with our other products as we you know went door to door. So that's great. So you're able to kind of leverage those existing relationships that you had because sure. of our family winery. But you know, like I said earlier, you know, our, our wine business was very very small, and it's still very small in comparison yeah. to the rest of our operation. So have you kind of seen that now? The um, the distillery business now that it's open has kind of outpaced the growth of your winery. Would you say? I, yeah, it's probably pretty close. Okay. I mean, the wine business is pretty is still pretty strong, mm-hmm. and you know, we we do see a lot of visitors here. We don't actively sell our wine brands wholesale. So okay. we actively soil the distilled spirits and the ciders, you know, mm-hmm. out in the world. I see. The ciders are in 27 states, and wow. I think the spirits are in four. Okay. So, you know, there's a much larger audience mm-hmm. that sees those products. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the name, Black Dirt. That's an interesting name. Where, well, where did, the soil, where did that, come the from? soil that surrounds us here is very dark, rich soil. Okay. Uh, at one time, it was a prehistoric forest. And after the Ice Age, the glaciers retreated back from this region of the world very late. And as, as they retreated, they created lakes. Mm-hmm. And the valley that we're in right now flooded. And the trees that were there became a swamp and the trees fell over and they made very rich, uh, highly organic soil. I see. Which is great for all sorts of different things. But one thing it does really well is it grows corn. Okay. Beautifully. And that's so that was we thought we'd make black dirt corn in our black dirt bourbon. Okay. So that and so since the distillery itself is there, we're using corn from the black dirt, we thought, you know, it's got a really nice name. 
Fantastic. Let's kind of talk about that. Where do you source uh, your corn from? Uh, all of it's t- local. It's all local. We, okay. We we grow, and when I say we grow, I mean I, I we work with other farmers to plant corn, specific varieties that are interesting to me for bourbon production. So not necessarily conventional sort of Roundup Ready corn. We're using you know older heritage varieties. Really, uh, open pollinated corn, some old cross corn. Some blue corn this year. Yeah. Uh, some red corn. How did you come up with your mash bill then, working with these kind of um, less readily available grains, especially to begin with? How did you guys get your hands on it? How did you decide? Well, originally we were like? we were working with local people and they would grow small batches for us. And there was a grain mill in upstate New York that uh, had some different types of corn available. And, you know, one of the things that we did have going for us is that we were able to take some, take our time. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to, you know, make a product and release it ever, really. Okay. Uh, we could make it and let it sit for six months, eight months, a wow. year. Okay. Um, so, you know, our bourbon is minimum of three years old. Oh, wow. We made that decision, and three years in full-size barrels. Uh, we made that decision early on that we weren't going to release a six-month-old bourbon in a little barrel or anything like that. Right. It takes time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it takes time. And so because we were experimenting, right. um, we actually have a whole slew of experiments. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of barrels that are experiment barrels. And, okay. And that's, we decided to release those too as a, Did you? In a single barrel expression. Okay. So, you know, a lot of the big companies do single barrel bottlings mm-hmm. and every single barrel is exactly the same. You know, if you get a single barrel Evan Williams, anytime you go get it, chances are it's going to pretty much taste like a single barrel Evan Williams. Right. If you get a single barrel black dirt mm-hmm. bourbon, every single barrel is different. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one will have a mash bill that's 90-10-90-10 wow. or 80-10-10 or different types of corn or different. Uh, one of we were doing uh, a weeded bourbon or mm-hmm. a, a rye-heavy rye bourbon or a, a malted rye bourbon that really had a lot of chocolate notes to it. Wow. So all of the... Uh, Single barrels that we did were, mm-hmm. were a little different. Oh wow! So so there are all the experiments that you know we've re- released. And if you go to our website, you can and you go to the products. And it has the different barrels that are listed. And if you can find any of them out there in the world, yeah. you could look them up and figure out what they were. Okay, very. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and collect them all because each one is uh, right. Well, I don't think I don't know if you can find enough of them okay. to collect them because we just do one barrel. So one barrel. Six hundred yep. six hundred barrel bottles, and that's it. And they won't ever taste the same again. Yeah. So, who is your taste making committee then? Uh, when it when it's Basically time to my, pop it open, m- and myself and Jeremy what, sit down mm-hmm. and we figure out what what's what. Do you recruit any friends to come in and help you out? Sometimes, uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> well, oftentimes, if whoever is here, yep, okay. in the building, we will uh, ask their opinions. Mm-hmm. Various staff members as well as uh, customers, if they're here. Oh well, on that particular day. Hope you get people with good taste buds then right. on those days yeah coming well, in. Well, you know, whether I don't know how much influence they really th- no, those individuals have, but uh so I'd like to talk a little bit more about the dressing of your product. Uh tell me about the bottle design. How'd you come up with that? How would you describe your bottle? I think it's sort of a traditional whiskey bottle okay. with a with T-top finish versus a ROPP or a screw trap. Mm-hmm. It's got a T-top finish. I think we were trying to look for a traditional sort yep. of package. We we our, our bourbon has got a uh, craft label on it. Okay, craft paper, you know, like a paper bag kind of label. Yeah, and we wanted something that had sort of like that 
that agricultural feel. Something, okay. And, you know, there's a tractor, the tractor on, 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 label. on the label. And on the back of it, there are tractor tracks driving through the black dirt. Very subtle. Same with the tractor itself. It's, you know, sort of like a watermark in the back almost. Yeah. And then the black dirt, you know, kind of looking like... It, the black dirt was written in dirt. Mm-hmm. I think that was what we were sort of going for, or like a, almost like a brand. How'd you come up with all of that? How'd you come up with that logo and that? Just uh, uh, again, you know, we sort of friends and family, and we we do work with a graphic artist who's a family friend we've, wow. we've known forever, and so we came up with that label. Such a great uh, way that you you really seem to be reaching out to the community right around here. Um, they seem to really giving you a lot of support and and provide you with uh, much of what your distillery needs to uh, run. Well, giving I, your roots I think here that's in the community. I think that we do have a lot of roots here in the community. Yeah. I think it, I think it's important to uh, work with your community. Mm-hmm. Shopping local that is sort of become a cliche these days, but it really does affect your community. It's mm-hmm. nice if we can you know buy something locally and give money to someone local. Yeah, <laughs> versus just some just. you know. Sending a check out in the mail to mm-hmm. like the black box of the internet, <laughs> whereas you give someone who you know personally, mm-hmm. you know, money for doing stuff is great. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me about uh, your barrels. What kind of barrels do you use for our bourbon? Right now, we are using all Char Three uh, full size barrels, brand new, obviously. Yeah, they're from uh, Independence Dave Company mostly, and Lebanon, Missouri. We did for a while try to source. New York oak barrels, mm-hmm. and we had we we had a cooper in Pennsylvania who was using New York oak to build barrels, but he wasn't charring them, and he oh. would, he would toast them. It was Keystone Cooperage, okay, and uh, they were toasting the barrel like a wine barrel would be toasted, mm-hmm. and we were putting apple brandy in them, and you would get a very different character than when you put it in a charred barrel. The charred barrel, you would get a lot of vanilla notes and a lot of butterscotch and that type of stuff. Whereas the toasted barrel, it was much more subdued, uh, a lot less of those sort of heavy oak influences. I see. And I, we decided pretty early on that that's, we were more interested in that kind of flavor mm-hmm. to go with our apples. And for that matter, you need a charred barrel to do bourbon anyhow. Mm, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it made more sense yeah. to have one barrel. So, cool. But we, we did want to, I would love to be able to find a New York oak cooper. You're the master distiller here. I mean, you've kind of just talked about uh, your family's history here, the history of the facility. Uh, what made you want to get into the family business of alcohol making? What brought you back here after college or was it something you studied in college? Well, I was a uh, food science major at Cornell University. As a kid, I got really into growing apples. And okay. I, I went to Cornell as a pomology fruit science major. And while I was there... Uh, oh, sorry, pomology? Just pomology. Sure. Okay, that's the... Uh, study so, of tree so. fruit. Wow, all right. It's actually the only science named after a goddess, Pomona. Oh, I do? Wow. So uh, it's the study of pomology. Very cool. Or, or of tree fruit, palms. And so while I was there, I uh, was also interested in wine, winemaking and grape growing. And I got to take a lot of varying classes, all sorts of different types of agricultural classes and uh, a lot of wine classes. And while I was doing that, I sort of got into fruit spirits. And from fruit spirits, that's sort of everything, like how it how this whole thing kind of 
became yeah. itself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it grew it, from fruit spirits to everything from else. Fruit spirits to everything else. Yeah. And after college, I came back here. I went and studied uh, cider making in Europe for a little while. Wow. I went to Persia College. And where was that? Where did you study uh, cider making? Oh, okay. And then. After that, we started distilling, and I uh, took uh, all sort of the alcohol courses you could take around the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. Different things at Siebel in Chicago for oh, yeah. craft brewing and microbiology. And I went to the alcohol school. At that time, it was in Lexington, Kentucky. And then uh, I went to Harriet Watt University for a master's degree in brewing and distilling. Wow. So, you so, know, that, that <laughs> you, uh, yeah. I really took it upon myself to. And again, 15 years ago when we got into this, right. there, were, there was a lot less out there. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot harder to find. People were throwing as many uh, weekend courses on how to distill, for example. Right, there were none of those. (laughs) and you didn't have uh, Google necessarily back then to just hop on it was uh, the internet was a different place back then too as far as searching and website availability it was sort of a different place wasn't it (laughs) you know it was a different time and we we sort of learned as we went Mm -hmm. a lot of times all the products that we were making I sort of felt like we were reinventing the wheel okay there was a lot of material out there about wine making there was a lot of material out there about beer making there was nothing out there in the United States, about making apple brandy, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> there was not. There were very, there was very little out there about making cider. And that's why I ended up having to go to England, England to do it. Yeah. And do you grow cider apples here then? Because that's a very specific kind of apple that um, they grow in Europe. It seems right versus what is traditionally right. grown uh, in the United States. Our product, Doc's Draft Hard Apple Cider, is is made from dessert fruit, okay. which are sort of the apples that you are well aware of those bittersweets and bitter sharps and tannic European cider varieties. We do grow a handful of them, mm-hmm. but they are not in our commercially available cider. I see. So you went and did all this uh, education and learned um, what was out there. Eventually, you get your still installed. Well, I did all. I, I sort of did everything backward. Okay. The <laughs> <laughs> interesting approach. The the still was here. Oh, the still was already here. Okay. Right. I that whole process I just took told you about was basically a 12-year process. Wow. Okay. So, you know, we were trying to, you know, make a living and I was doing all of that stuff. So I wasn't going, like, you know, it wasn't go to college, go get a degree, go do this, do that. Yeah. It was not a, that sort of traditional. It was get a still, oh, we should learn how to use this thing. <laughs> it was get a still, started using it, a more had a few problems, yeah. tried to figure out some, okay. some of that on your own. Sure. Did a lot of reading, been like, you know what, we need to, I need I need a little more help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that kind of thing. Gotcha. Well, still, so, so that first time you turn on your still, though, and you decide to uh, get it boiling, achieve rectification, all those things. What was that moment? That was was a kind of a oh crap moment for you, or was it? Uh, wow, this is pretty cool. What what was it like the first time you turned on that? So still? the first still that As we like turned you're on, in charge. Actually, I had mentioned Michigan State, mm-hmm. where I had gone out to check out their uh, program on uh, distilling. Yes, that was in a, a U.S based program and uh, the first time we, we uh, turned on our still I uh, we had a uh, graduate student from Michigan State come out and give, oh, give me a hand nice <laughs> alright <laughs> so that I think the first time that we had someone uh, we turned it on and it was daunting 
Yeah. I almost don't even remember. It was so mm-hmm. long ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You've run it so many times now. And yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, that means a good, you weren't uh, scarred from that first experience. No. And I, you know, yeah. the distillation <laughs> process of it isn't really all that complicated. If you're, as long as you're, you know, paying attention and you're cognizant of temperatures and yeah. that kind of stuff, it kind of almost happens on, on itself, okay. by itself. A lot of the work comes beforehand in, in fermentation and in mashing and in all of that kind of stuff. And then after distillation, you have gauging and blending and bottling and maturation and all that. Right. So th- there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle outside of that outside of the- time period where you're watching the still cook. Okay. At that point, you're almost a babysitter. Yeah. It just take, and, that, and it's just going to do its thing the way it's been designed. Uh, you just well, kind of keep you, your you, eye on the gauges, make sure the temperatures are right. Right. And, and you know, if your product is varies going in mm-hmm. you're going to have to adjust things okay. you know as as needed so now that you've been doing it for a while uh you have your product in four states what's been your proudest professional moment uh i think re- i think releasing i think releasing arbarin yeah what was pretty exciting mm-hmm. we had fruit spirits and gin and uh even uh an aged brandy but I think releasing a bourbon was probably pretty up there. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool because it took you aged it for three years. You kind of yeah, it's like letting your baby out into the world on some. Well, level. and that and there was an added step to it. You know, everything else was fermentation, distillation, maturation, and aging. Okay. With the bourbon, we you know there was all of the mashing and dealing with a product that we hadn't. I specifically for me, you know, I had never worked with grains. Okay. Uh, I came from a fruit, fruit background, so you know, apples, pears, peaches plums, you know, they're all fruit. Yeah. And, you know, I know fruit. Okay, yes. <laughs> no milling involved, no, well, nothing n- like n- that. Right. But, yeah. Milling, it's, but different type of milling. You know, you have to grind sure. up, you the, have fruit, to grind or, up the fruit. But, but it's, it's, yeah. it's, a different, it's a different ball of wax. Mm-hmm. And for me, the grain portion was a little bit more complicated. And, you know, since then, I've now, I like working with grain a lot. So that I think releasing a bourbon was, was kind of exciting for me. Yeah. You know, from that respect. You know, actually, you mentioned your gin. We haven't really talked about that yet. Tell me about your gin. Um, well, we make a gin called okay. Warwick Gin. Okay. Um, it is, it's a really very standard sort of style gin. Okay. In that it tastes like gin. You know, we didn't want to make a gin that was lavender-y or apple or, or peach or some other flavor other than really juniper berry. Yeah. And I think the reason that is is because we make a lot of esoteric products. We made a lot of, especially when we started making the gin in two thousand eight or nine or whenever it was. We had all these esoteric products, and you know they were hard to sell, and they were things that people didn't necessarily know what to do with. And so, if we came out with a gin that tasted like rose petals and kiwi fruit, <laughs> yep. we were like, you know what? Who's going to use it? What are they going to do with it? We're going to have another product on the shelf that you know we're going to have to explain to everyone what it is, yeah. just like cherry cordial, okay, <laughs> or bourbon barrel aged apple liqueur, okay. Which is a, those are two products that we make. So we were like, let's make a gin that people could take and you know take out Tangeray and put in Warwick gin and make a gin and tonic with or a martini with and be equally as satisfied. And so I think that's what we tried to accomplish. So our recipe for that is or botanicals are. Yeah. Uh, Juniper berries, coriander, star anise, uh, angelica root, lemon and lime peel. Oh, wow. So okay. just a very traditional. Very sort of traditional six botanicals. Now, the one thing that is a little different is the quantity of juniper berries that we use is really very high okay. as a ratio. I see. So we have an enormous amount of juniper. So it's really like a juniper bomb yeah. right up in front. Wow, very so cool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. What's something you wish you knew then when you were first getting started with your own product that you've kind of learned 
Now, what do you wish someone had told you uh, before you started? Having done all the education you did, I'm sure there must have been something that even today you're like, oh man, I wish I knew that going into this. Well, you know, that's a hard question and I was thinking about it. I think that the, the amount of work involved is no one ever really prepare, can prepare you for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's like, just everything is just so much work. Yes, okay. And, you know, I think if you do it thinking that it's work, it's too it's almost too much you know this is like this is a lifestyle for me you mm-hmm. know it's like what i do it's who i am you know I, and i've been doing it for so long and it's like ingrained into me so yeah. it's not to me it's not really work okay. it's like just life just the way your day goes it's uh, my day yeah. goes but it, and it's it no is, 9 to 5 right it I mean, is not a 9 yeah. to 5 job <laughs> it, you know it's it's all the time okay and I don't know if you can learn that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you had said a lot of people say, when you ask the other people this question, you know, mm-hmm. people say money. Money generally and is what. Uh, the money, you know, they, it is a very, very expensive endeavor to get into. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of jokes, you know, uh, how do you make a f- small fortune in, in, in really the booze business yeah. is to start with a large one. Right. <laughs> but I think that that's probably true. And, but, you know, it, we're in, we're in heady times here in yeah. the alcohol industry right now. And it, it's a, it's a nice place to be, and I think if you you're making quality products and you're you work really hard at it, I believe like the money has to come. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> That's I keep telling myself. That's you keep telling yourself, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, really, really. It will come it'll, eventually. It'll come eventually. It'll, it'll yeah. be here soon. <laughs> uh, but it's a lot of work, and I think worst uh, case scenario, you have plenty of delicious bourbon to drink. And, uh, yeah, right. we okay. got a lot, lot, lot of different products to drink and enjoy. Yeah. So when you're not here at the distillery and you go out, you go to a restaurant or a bar, has being on the production side kind of changed the way that you go out to restaurants? You go out to bars? Does it? Are you are you more aware of what's behind a bar and what people oh, are absolutely. serving? I'm, I'm yeah. absolutely more aware. I'm more aware of that. That I think I am at least. Yeah, you okay. know? I mean, but again, people are really. You know, there are people, lots of people that are really into distilled spirits yeah. out there that are you know not in the distilled spirits business, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they're very aware of what's going on behind the bar too. Sure, I think being in the business makes you a little bit more savvy. Okay, know, some you know, especially there's a lot of magic that sometimes goes on on labels. Yeah, okay, <laughs> right. And I think that you know you can sometimes decipher that mm-hmm. there's a lot of confusion out there with the way some labeling can be done sure of course uh, as far as state of origin uh, and that kind of stuff where where the product is actually coming from and how it was actually handled by the person who put the label on it um, right. and their role in the process yeah or if they had a role in the process <laughs> <laughs> just one uh, final question and i think it goes back to kind of the uh, unique alcohols that you made to begin with and what's one cocktail or one recipe that really you think captures the essence of of your products um let's let's try one of your like fruit liqueurs would, would is there a way you like to prepare it that you would say someone who pulls down well so um, we have a whole variety of fruit liqueurs what's your favorite what's one recipe you can kind of share we make a black currant cordial which is similar to a creme de cassis okay and just a little background on that product we started uh, making that because our neighbor of ours was growing them okay and black currants and they needed to get rid of them. And I said, you know what? I was in France once and I went to a creme de cassis factory and did some drinking there. And I think I can remember how to come up with that. (laughs) And so we ended up coming up with a creme de cassis, which I think is pretty lovely. Yeah. And uh, we sweetened it with uh, local wildflower honey. Wow. And so I really like that product. Coincidentally enough, that that whole process um, happened in... uh, Early on in my relationship with my now wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so we spent a, a lot of time in our early 
courtship, drinking black mm-hmm. currant cordial. Oh, really? Various, <laughs> Interesting. In various uh, experimentation forms. And uh, anyway, that's just a side note. And, uh, <laughs> it's a good way to. Uh, <laughs> so, it, yeah. So, a cocktail that I like making with black currant uh-huh. cordial is uh, a bramble. Okay. And uh, bramble is basically a, like a. It's a gin drink. It's like a Tom Collins with a splash of. Black current to it. Wow. Okay. So, uh, and I think it's really refreshing over ice, maybe with a sprig of uh, mint. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite cocktails with one of our our liqueurs. Very cool. And your bourbon? How do you uh, recommend drinking that? Neat. I, I like it neat or on the rocks. Okay. That's just the way I like it. Yeah. But if I was gonna make, I'd obviously make a Manhattan with it. And All right. The Manhattans I like to make actually use our cherry cordial. Oh wow. So as opposed to sweet vermouth. A little cherry cordial along with your bitters. And then, you know, it's a nice little twist. Gives a little more cherry note to it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me today. It's been great. It's been like a trip down memory lane for me. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Zach.